Amen, church family. I trust that you are rejoicing in your home, and we are thankful that you are tuning in with us this, uh, this Sunday morning, this Resurrection Sunday. And if you're a guest with us, we're thrilled that you're joining in as well. And if you haven't ever connected with us, we invite you to go to oakparkbaptist.com slash connect card, where you can uh, take a record of your attendance of, of at least tuning in, and we can reach out to you and, and thank you for coming. And also, everybody can tune in there to um, just let us know if you have any prayer requests or needs that you may have that you want to let us know about, or if there's any way that we can particularly serve you, um, there you can indicate that as well. Well, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, and this is where our scripture reading is going to come from. John chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping down to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May God bless the reading of his word. I invite you to join me in prayer. And at this time, we typically do our offering. And so if uh, you are wondering how you can give uh, during this offering time, we encourage you to go to oakparkbaptist.com give, and it will list out the various means that you can do that. But I invite you now to turn to the Lord and pray with me. O oh God of our redemption, 
Great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. But far greater joy was when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Through the cross and resurrection, Jesus, you stride forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. You burst the bands of death, trampled over the power of darkness, and you live forevermore. Jesus, you are our gracious guarantee. You have apprehended the payment of our debt. You have come forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we ask that you would show us here the proof that Jesus' vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is broken, and that his wrongful throne has been leveled. Oh, give us assurance that Christ has died for us and that in him we also have risen. And in his life we live and in his victory we triumph. And in his ascension we shall be glorified. Precious Redeemer, you who were lifted up upon a cross or ascended to the highest heaven, you who are the Son of Man, the man of sorrows, was crowned with thorns, and are now as Lord of life adorned with glory. On the cross there was no shame more deep than yours, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel. But now in the resurrection there is no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, and no advocate more effective. Jesus, you are in the triumphal procession, leading captive your enemies behind you. What more could be done that has been done? Your death is our life, your resurrection our peace, your ascension our hope, and your prayers our comfort. Lord Jesus, as we set our minds upon the cross and your resurrection, may we glory in it. May we find our hope, our strength, our life in the glories of Calvary. And so now as we come to you in this time of weakness, separation, dispersion. Lord, may you still be praised. May we look forward to the day in which your glorious light shines again as we gather again in this place. But until then, Lord, may we worship you. May we long for you. May we long for your coming. May you be glorified in the songs that we sing, the voices that we lift. May they be words that don't just come from our lips, but they may derive from our hearts. And then as we open up your glorious gospel here in just a few minutes, Lord, oh, may we be moved. May we see your glorious truth in the cross and resurrection and the hope that it brings for us. Lord, this is our prayer for your glory and in your namesake. Amen.
this morning in that great truth that he is risen. He is risen indeed, Father. We are not gathered here this morning, but we can celebrate across the nation, Father, the truth that Christ is risen. And I praise you for that this morning, that we can still gather together in spirit to sing of these great truths, Father. And I thank you. I pray now that you would continue to work in our lives, Lord, as we open up the word and as Pastor Chase preaches to us this morning, Father. Help us to be attentive and ready to take in this great truth. Father, we thank you and we love you. We ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, church family, and if you're just now tuning in, I want to thank you for coming and worshiping with us this Lord's Day, this Resurrection Sunday. 
And uh, if you didn't catch at the very beginning, if you're new with us, we're thrilled that you're tuning in with us this morning. And I invite you to just go to oakparkbaptist.com slash connect card at the end of the service and just let us know that you are here. That's a way you can stay connected with all that's going on. And you can also put any prayer requests or needs that you may have that we might be able to meet uh, there and we can follow up with you this week. Well, if you would, let's take your copy of God's Word and we're going to turn to the last book of the Bible. We're going to look at the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And while you're turning there, I want you to consider this question. I want you to consider why the cross of Christ and His resurrection is so important. Maybe you aren't a believer and you are tuning in and you're wondering why is Easter such a big deal to Christians? Yes, you understand that Jesus died on the cross and maybe you heard of the resurrection, but why is it a big deal? Or maybe you are a believer and as you think about that question, maybe different things come to your mind. What is the reason why today is such a big deal? Why is the resurrection so important? Well, for some people, they would answer that the resurrection and the cross are important because it motivates us to be overcomers in some manner. Others might say, well, the cross and resurrection are important because it exemplifies the ultimate example of love and sacrifice for others. Where others might look at the cross and, and what it signifies and say it's a source of great joy and empowers them to live a hope-filled life. And while there may be elements of truth in all these responses, what I want you to hear today is that the fundamental importance of the cross and resurrection is that Jesus has satisfied the justice of God the Father by taking the punishment we deserve for our rebellion so that through faith in Jesus, all our sins may be forgiven and that we may be clothed in his righteousness. That's the importance of the cross and resurrection. On the cross, Jesus took our place, satisfying the demands of God's justice so that we would not have our sins held against us and that we may one day come into the Father's presence once again. That is the fundamental truth of the gospel. And so in that truth, or in that way, the cross manifests the great love for God. We know that God has loved us. He loves us because He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to die on the cross. By sending Jesus, He has rescued us and redeemed us so that we should have hope in ultimate healing, restoration, and eternal life. But I want us to see also this morning that it's also important for us to realize that on the cross, Christ not only satisfied the justice of God on our behalf, but he also triumphed over the powers of evil. On the cross, evil was defeated. And we've sung about that this morning. We have sung about the triumph of Christ, the conquering of Christ, the defeat of death, and where death no longer has its sting. And so that is a 
truth that is grounded in the resurrection, the truth of the cross and resurrection. And we know that because Christ is risen from the grave. And so this is the good news for us who trust in Christ. This is the good news for all who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus because though evil seems to abound, doesn't it? Evil seems to abound. We know that it has its expiration date. Even the so-called natural evil of, of viruses and natural disasters, they will be no more because of what Christ has done on the cross. However, when we look at the cross, as we look maybe even at the gospel accounts and as we read this Good Friday or you've read before, when we look at the cross, it doesn't look that victorious, does it? It doesn't look that powerful. It doesn't look that triumphant. Maybe you, you look at the cross and, and it looks like weakness. It looks like tragedy or perhaps even foolishness. Even now, though, though Christ is risen, we don't even see Him. And it's often difficult to perceive that He truly reigns over this earth, isn't it? But with eyes of faith, we can see the wisdom and the power of God in the cross and resurrection. But we need the Scripture's help. The Scripture actually supplies faith for us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And so we have to come to the Scriptures to see these things, to see the power and wisdom of God in the cross and resurrection. Now recently, and this was before Corona, I was in the mall in, in Louisville and uh, went into the Lego store. I was there for my son, if you're wondering. Uh, he wanted to go into the store, and so we went in and, and saw all these just immaculate uh, Legos that were built. But something struck my eye that time. Uh, there was a new line of Legos, and it was actually called the Hidden Side. Uh, that was kind of the theme of the series of this Lego, and, and they look like normal Legos, uh, they, they just like the yellowhead people with their their bodies and 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 that had um, you know buildings and cars and all the things that that you think of with Legos, but there was one addition to this new theme. In fact, you you were to take your phone or your i device and you could download an app, and when you downloaded an app and you had this Lego built, you could look through the camera lens of your device. And you saw the hidden side of things. It, it kind of had a spiritual dimension. And, and this was kind of ghostly and, 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 yeah, I guess a little demonic. Uh, but anyway, you could then see that there were spiritual beings. That actually, when you looked at the building that you built or the car, that there were spiritual forces floating around. And then you could look around off your device and, and it would look just like the normal Legos. It was like your device served as a window into the spiritual realm. Well, the book of Revelation, where we're going to find ourselves this morning, actually serves us in a similar way. It looks upon the world and helps us see the spiritual realities behind it. And here in Revelation chapter 12, where we're going to be, the veil has been lifted behind the cross so that we can actually see what was happening in the spiritual realm. Our Bibles are like those eye devices and the Legos. You can lift it up, and now you could look at the cross through the lens of Scripture, and you can see what is really 
going on. And most importantly, what we're going to see is that our great foe has been defeated. If you're at Revelation 12, I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. The Apostle John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and, and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, or on the sand of the sea. As we look at this text, it's kind of a strange text, isn't it? Like I said, it's being able to give us a lens into the spiritual realm. Well, as we look at this text on this Resurrection Sunday, here's what I want for us. This is what I've been praying for us. I've been praying that we would see the cross maybe in a new light. Maybe you've never even looked at this text before, or you have, and you just wonder what in the world is going on. It's my prayer that we would behold, that we would see the glories of Calvary. And as we see Calvary, we see what took place on the hill of Golgotha, we would gain a renewed confidence that evil has indeed been defeated. 
And Christ has secured for us victory over Satan, sin, and death forevermore. That's what my prayer is for us. And what we're going to see this morning is that by his death and resurrection, Christ has triumphed over evil's opposition, evil's reign, and evil's threat. And what we see depicted in these opening verses, verses 1 through 5, shows us the triumph of Christ over evil's opposition. Over evil's opposition. Now, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, we've been working through a series on where is God when trouble strikes? Where's God in the midst of all this corona crisis? Where is God when evil seems to abound? And we've been trying to answer that question. And if you were there for the first sermon in the series, we examined evil's origin. And we saw the entrance of evil into this world came by way of a serpent in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against their good creator. And as a result of their rebellion, their sin, moral evil, all evil, has entered into the world. And that explains why death has spread to all people. However, we saw in Genesis 3.15, there is a note of hope. Hope that one day there will be a child born from the line of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And so now as we come to the last book of the Bible, this imagery of the woman and the serpent is picked up again. I hope you could at least make that connection. This imagery is picked up again, but the woman here represents all the offspring of Eve, all the offspring of the godly, all the saints in the line of faith, leading up to Mary, giving birth to Jesus. This is what we see in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown with twelve stars." That's what's really behind that symbolism. That's tipping us off that, that there's something more than meets the eye than just there being a woman. Who is this woman? Well, if you remember providentially last Sunday in our sermon with Joseph in his dream. What did Joseph dream? In his dream, he saw the sun, moon, and stars all bowing down to him. And who were they? They were the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the people of God. And so this woman represents the people of God, and they are like the stars in heaven. They're like the heavenly host. They're far removed from the events of this world, able to withstand the danger of this world. Yet, but when we come to verse 2, the, the picture painted here is one of weakness, one of agony, particularly recalling the agonies of childbirth. And it visualizes here the struggle of this life against the forces of evil. But the picture gets even more grim when you go to verse 3 because there's another sign in heaven, another uh, symbol that John sees. And this is that of a fiery dragon. And this dragon, he is ferocious. He has seven heads. And he has ten horns. Horns represent power and might. And he has seven diadems on his head. He, he reigns. He looks like he's ruling with crowns. 
But I want you to also notice, what does he do? With, with his tail, he has swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. This dragon seems so ferocious that he even can attack heaven itself. And so if the woman is described in weakness, in vulnerability, not to mention the helplessness of a child, the dragon is shown to be incredibly powerful, unstoppable. In fact, the situation for the woman and the child looks completely hopeless here. Because this dragon, what is he doing? He's crouched down waiting for this woman to give birth to the child so that the moment the child is born, he may devour that child and destroy him. Now, what in the world is all this about? What is this talking about? Well, the picture is that of the birth of Christ. I hope you can see that. And the spiritual dynamics all surrounding his, his incarnation, his life, all the way to the cross. I invite you just to think about the story of Jesus. Do you remember Herod and what Herod was trying to do? Because there was a king to be born and who was threatening his reign. And so what did Herod do? He sought to kill all the male babies being born who were 12, or I mean, excuse me, two years and under. They look totally helpless. How's this family, how's this mother birthing this child going to escape the powerful forces of Herod? Yet what happened? Angels came to Joseph in a dream the night before they were to come, and they are able to get out, and they were to flee to Egypt. And just in time, weren't they, to escape the dragon's jaws? Or let's think about Jesus as his, his ministry starts after his baptism. He's sent out into the wilderness where he's, he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of that fast, who comes to visit him? Is it not that rascally devil, Satan, who comes and now begins to tempt him and, and tempts to thwart God's plan, tempts him just like he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden to bring sin and destruction into the world? Yet... Jesus prevails over that temptation. Or better yet, think about the religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus' teaching and threatened by Jesus' miracles and wonders. They're threatened that he is going to turn the people away from them and they're going to lose all their power. And so what do they do? They plot and they seek and they try to kill Jesus. And if you notice in the story, there's times it seems like they've got him cornered, but then somehow Jesus just slips through their grip. Well, then, of course, we come to the cross. It looks like they've won. Jesus is nailed to the cross, and what has occurred? Jesus has been abandoned by all his friends. He's betrayed by one of his own disciples. He's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's beaten and flogged. He's crowned with not diadems, but thorns, and he's hung naked on a tree to suffocate and die. It looks like the dragon has won. It looks like the dragon is right there. He's got the child in his grips. He is about to devour him. But look in verse 5. 
the woman, she gave birth to a male child. Who is this one? Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Why does the dragon want to destroy this child? Why has he worked through Herod and the religious leaders and even the Roman government to try and kill Jesus? Because the dragon knows he must destroy the one who is sent to crush him. Dragon knows I've got to crush him before he can crush me. And yet, Jesus' most vulnerable position, so vulnerable, crucified on the cross, abandoned by God the Father, the dragon, in that most vulnerable moment, that moment you would think the dragon has all the upper hand, all the power, Jesus escapes. The dragon still cannot destroy him. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus died on the cross, don't we? Death's reign seems to have won on that day of, of Good Friday. But on the third day, he rose again because the grave could not hold him. Look at the rest of verse 5. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This whole imagery of this woman and child and the dragon, what is it doing? It takes us from the birth of Christ all the way to his resurrection, his ascension, and it looks forward to his return where he will rule the nations with a rod of iron and he will banish that dragon. And all those who align with him and follow him and, and have trusted in his kingdom, he will banish them into the lake of fire. What I want you to see here is that on the cross, Christ triumphs over evil's opposition. Evil opposes God, opposes the people of God, opposes Christ, but it cannot win. Even when it looks like that you cannot lose, it does. The cross reminds us, brothers and sisters, and this is where I want you to think here. We often talk about living in light of the cross. We talk about walking in light of the cross, believing in the cross, preaching the gospel to yourself, because that is how we are to live. We are to live looking through the, our life through the lens of the cross. This is why, because the cross reminds us that though we are weak, aren't we? Though at times we feel absolutely vulnerable, and in the agony with the pains of this world, the opposition of evil, what we know is that evil will not prevail. Evil won't prevail. Even in us. Even if we face death itself. In fact, what we're going to see is that the reign of evil has come to an end through Christ's triumph. And this is what's pictured here in, the, in a war described in verses 7 through 10. We see here Christ has triumphed over evil's reign. Now, now verses 7 through 10 serves as kind of like a zooming in lens of a camera. We, we've seen the big picture in verses 1 through, through 5. 
Now we're zooming in. What took place at the cross? And what it does is it gives us a clear view of Satan's defeat on the cross. Now remember, keep this in mind with all this imagery, Revelation is lifting the veil so that you may see the spiritual dynamics that are work on the cross. And so while on earth we look at the cross and, and it looks like weakness in foolishness, what we see here is actually the wisdom and power of God. There's a paddle that occurs in heaven. Satan's battle against God and his holy angels but this battle ends in his defeat. Satan thinks he's taken out Jesus, doesn't he? He, he thinks he's won. He's, he's led him to the cross. The Son of God is going to be crucified, and it's now time for Satan in his mind to take over heaven. But on, but the third day occurs. The third day dawns. The morning star rises and Christ rises from the grave and now Satan knows he's finished. Now I just kind of picture this war in heaven and Satan is the great foe wielding his sword. And what's his sword? His sword is death. But Jesus arises from the grave and he shatters Satan's sword. He shatters death itself. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Satan, the evil one who deceives the whole world to rebel against God, he is now thrown out of heaven and he is thrown down to earth. He, along with all his fallen angels. We see that in verse 9. The heavenly rain, this might be new to you, the heavenly reign that Satan was enjoying over the nations has come to an end. As Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning, crash and burn. This is how John puts it in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, now look at this. Before the cross, Satan used his place in heaven as his angelic being, to reign over the nation, wielding the spiritual forces of evil to enslave the human race under the power of sin and death to oppose God. So you might think of Job. Satan was able to ascend to the throne, ascend before God and accuse Job, to go and attack Job from heaven. But that's all changed since the cross. And so as our accuser before God, before the cross, Satan could hold up God's law. He could hold up God's righteous law and actually try to wield it against God himself, even calling God's character into question because God seemingly was overlooking the sins of the saints, even in the Old Testament who were believing the promises by faith. 
Satan would point out, you cannot overlook their sins. That goes against your character. That goes against your law. Your law says you demand justice, and the law is born out of your own character. You cannot overlook sin. They belong to me and death. Furthermore, he could point out to God, these people don't love you anyway. Their hearts are hard. They're corrupted by evil. They don't love you with their heart. And so he would accuse even God himself and say, you are corrupt if you do not judge them. I don't know if you've ever seen or read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. You might remember the scene where Edmund who had been captured by the, the witch, who had seduced him with the uh, Turkish delight and, and, and brought him under her enslavement. When he's rescued, she comes and actually comes before Aslan and accuses Edmund before him. And she accuses him saying, he is mine because he, he is a traitor. He has broken the law. And so she tells Aslan, you must hand him over to me because if you break the law, if you overlook the law, which Narnia has been built upon, and you break it, the whole world will be destroyed with fire. Everything will be undone. You cannot keep him. He's mine. Well, in a similar way, Satan would be before the cross, was able to accuse us before the Father. He was able to accuse us because God's very law requires justice to be served. Satan thought he could use God's righteous law against him and against us because God cannot violate his own character. But here's where I want you to see the beauty of the cross. Through Christ's substitutionary, substitutionary death on the cross, God is able to remain both the just one and the justifier. He can forgive sins and remain just because of what Christ did on the cross. He can forgive all those who trust in Christ, who are united to Christ. He can forgive us of all of our sins. And so no longer can Satan accuse us before God because Jesus has delivered us from the condemnation of the law, which has stood against us because of our sin. It condemned us. Yet now we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, who stands there and says, the penalty has been paid. They are covered. They have been cleansed. Their sins are no more. I have wiped them away. And in so doing, he has triumphed over evil's reign, and he has silenced the accuser. That is what took place on the cross. And now what has happened? Christ is seated on the throne. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Scriptures tell us he is now putting all his enemies under his feet right now. And so Christ is reigning now from heaven, and he is rescuing souls from the domain of darkness, and he's transferring them into his glorious kingdom, whereby all who love him and cherish him and trust him 
and have trusted his saving work on our behalf, we too will reign with him in glory. But in the meantime, though this truth has occurred and this is how Christ is reigning, and we see that here in this text, what we also see is that Satan is a wounded dragon and his kingdom is crumbling. And like a rabid dog before his death, he is lashing out against all the earth, especially against the saints and kind of a suicide mission. But what I want us to see here in the, in the last part of this sermon is that for us in Christ, Satan's bite no longer has any venom. His threat has been removed. Christ has triumphed over evil's threat. See, because of what Christ has done on the cross, the church, remember, this is the offspring of the woman, The church actually shares in the conquest over Satan. We share in this triumph that Christ has conquered. And we see that here in verse 11. Look at what John says. And they, who are they? That's the saints. That's the church. That's the offspring of the woman. And they have conquered him. They've conquered Satan. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Do you see that? Because of Christ and what he has done, we too now conquer the dragon. But notice the ground of our victory. Our victory is not in ourselves, it's not in our power, it's not in our wisdom, it's not in our might. But notice, we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb. It's his victory that is shared with us. We conquer Satan by the power of the cross. And so, how do we do that? What sense is Satan losing? Satan is conquered every time you and I hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We hold fast by faith to Christ in his name. And we do so in the face of temptation. As we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ, as Satan's tempter comes, as he seeks to devour us like a lion as he tempts us to leave our spouse, as he tempts us to look at evil things, as he tempts us to covet after wicked things and to abandon our faith, to abandon Christ. Every time we deny ourselves and hold fast to Christ, the serpent is conquered. He's conquered even if we hold fast to Christ through death. He comes and he threatens to kill us. Notice that there. They love not their lives even unto death. That's the absolute extreme. That's all he can do. And yet we conquer because we never let go of Christ. I hope you begin to see the power and the wisdom of God and how it shapes our lives as we battle against the forces of evil. We now hold fast to the gospel and to the testimony of Christ, verse 11. 
We don't now back down from proclaiming this good news because we know that this word, it is a powerful word. The cross is powerful because it sets the captive free. We can release captives by preaching this gospel. And Satan's power has been defeated. In fact, this gospel, this word of Christ, sets the captive free by breathing the life-giving power of the gospel into them. It's as we sing in Martin Luther's glorious hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I love these words. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. What is that word? It's the word above all earthly powers. It is the word of Christ and so what I want you to see here, that as just as Jesus promised he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, so Satan's attempts now to destroy the church are absolutely futile. Now, that might seem a little far-fetched, especially in this time. I'm preaching to a largely empty room. It seems like evil is winning, doesn't it? And that's just one example. The church doesn't look like it can stand a chance against the kingdoms of this world. It cannot compete with its entertainment. It cannot compete with its music. It cannot compete with its message. It cannot compete with its fame. It cannot compete with its riches. It seems that the kingdom of this world, if it wanted to, could stamp out the church in a moment, just like a woman giving birth before a dragon. It looks like evil is winning. But this is why we turn to the blood of the Lamb. Because just as Satan's evil plot and scheme to destroy the Christ was thwarted, nothing he can do can Thwart the ultimate triumph and victory of the church. And this is what we see in the rest of verses 13 through 14. Actually, look at the end of verse 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His kingdom is crumbling. He knows he has an expiration date. And so verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, what did he do? He pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for times and times and half a time. Because Satan knows his time is short, because he knows his kingdom is crumbling, he pursues the woman. Who's the woman? The people of God. He pursues the church. However, what we're going to see is that every attempt Satan has 
to destroy the woman, to destroy the people of God, he fails. He cannot do it. We see this first attempt here in verses 13 and 14. He pursues the woman, yet she miraculously gets the wings of an eagle and can fly away at the last moment. It's like trying to catch a bird. You're sneaking up upon it, and then at that last moment, it can fly away. And so she, the church, is, is fled into the wilderness. Isn't that what it sometimes feels like? It feels like we're in the wilderness. We're on the run. But yet, just like God cared for and nourished Israel in the Exodus after they came out through the Red Sea, and they're wandering in the wilderness, what did God do? He cared for them. He preserved them. He kept them. Though the serpents were nipping at their heels, God cares for us. He preserves his church. However, the serpent doesn't give up. Look in verses 15 and 16. Now the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. How are you going to escape a tsunami coming after you? Yet the remarkable happens, verse 16, but the earth comes to help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from its mouth. It seems like a flood is coming and then all of a sudden it's absorbed by the earth. He tries to sweep the church away. Now, what is all this about? It is painting a picture for us to help set some expectation for us that until Jesus returns, we are going to feel like a woman who's just given birth, running for her very life in a desolate wilderness. It's going to feel like that. And it's going to feel like that we are narrowly escaping the dragon's pursuit. Is that how you might feel right now? Maybe there are things going on in your life that you think are going to be the end of you. Maybe you're wavering in your faith, your trust in Christ. And just now, the gospel is fresh to you again. And you're holding fast where, where Satan thought he had you, thought he had you giving into temptation, turning your back on Christ because of the, the floods that are coming against you. You've now heard the word afresh, the gospel anew. And this is how Christ preserves us. He nourishes us so that the church is never ultimately stamped out. And so what we see in this text is a promise from God, a promise that the church as a whole is going to prevail. That doesn't mean Oak Park itself, 1111 Allison Lane, will always exist, but the church always will. The church will always triumph, even in the face of COVID-19. You would think we're done, but we're not. But let me ask you, do you belong to his church? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Does the church recognize you as a member of the body of Christ? Because this victory, this conquering, this triumph is only promised for his church. It's only promised for those who trust in Jesus and identify with his body. So let me ask you, do you belong to his church? 
Or do you belong to this world which is passing away? Do you more readily identify with the kingdom of this world? Is your heart more gripped by the things of this world? Because I have, good, I have news for you. This world is passing away. Notice the last verse in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious. Why is he furious? Because he can't triumph over the church. He became furious with the woman. And so he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Individual Christians. So the woman represents us as a whole, the offspring, individuals, those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He goes after us as individuals. This is why you don't want to be a sheep who's away from the pen. And some of you are slow to get into the pen you like to wander on your own. You like to say, no, the kingdom of this world, it's not that bad. It's not that dangerous. I can drink it up and I am fine. And you have no idea that you have been zeroed in by the dragon. Serpent now seeks to devour you. And so as the Scripture reminds us elsewhere, Satan's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. But here's a call to us to remain faithful, to remain faithful to the commands of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Are you holding fast? Are you turning to the Scriptures or has, has COVID exposed who you really are? Has COVID sent you and scattered you out and propelled you into the world and you no longer really hold fast? But the true offspring of the woman, the true children of God, the true body of Christ, they're holding dear to the commandments, to the word of Christ. They are not like the dragon here who stands on the sea who stands on the sand. But they are like those who've built their house on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Is your life built on the rock? Or have you built your life on a foundation of sand? Have you built your life and surrounded around Christ? Is He your only hope? Are you banking in the blood of the Lamb? Or, or would you much rather side with the kingdom of this world. Yes, I know the world. Oh, I know the riches of the world, the fame of the world, the power of the world. It is so enticing, isn't it? It looks like it is the path of true joy and everlasting happiness. But let me ask you, have you noticed what a microscopic virus has done to the kingdom of this world? It has shut it down. And if a microscopic virus can, can thwart the kingdom of this world and can disrupt it and can send you and lock you up in your house, do you think it will stand when the King of kings and the Lord of lords comes to rule them with a rod of iron? 
When he comes and by a, a word, he will strike down the evil one and he will smash the kingdoms of this world and he will burn it with a fire. Do you think you will stand with the world on that day? You will not stand because your life is built on sinking sand. And I am appealing to you to trust in the lamb who was slain. Because though this lamb on earth looks weak, fragile, and vulnerable, he is a roaring lion. And he is going to come. And he will bring all those who have loved him and all those who have trusted him and have held fast to him and have chosen him over the fleeting pleasures of sin. He is going to come and rescue them. But all the rest will share the fate of Satan and his angels. And they will be cast into a lake of fire. And that leads us to where we'll be next week. We're going to look at evil's doom in Revelation 20 through 22, where we're going to see that this foe, his time, what will happen when his time is run out and Christ returns. But not only are we going to look at his doom and the lake of fire and all those who side with this kingdom that is crumbling, but then we will look at the glorious truths of the kingdom of God and the glories and the treasures and the pleasures that await those who trust Christ now and who have bowed their knee to him. Oh, it will be a glorious day when our Savior comes for us. So right now, maybe you're thinking, I have not trusted Christ like this. I have never seen the gospel like this. I've never understood the cross like this. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go to oakparkbaptist.com slash connect card, and I want you to fill out that online form and let us know that you have trusted Christ and that you want to identify with his church, identify with his kingdom through the waters of baptism so that we can follow up with you. There's no other way we can know. And I want you to respond. Because you do not know the hour or the day in which the kingdom of this world will be done. And at that point, it will be too late. So trust Christ now. Because this is the one who has defeated death. And he says, if you want to defeat death, come follow me. I am the way. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through you because you're the one who has blazed the trail through death itself and you have shattered Satan's sword. You have leveled his kingdom rule. You have leveled his throne. And you have brought him to his end. And so we rejoice that though that dragon is fierce, he is a wounded dragon, and his bite no longer has venom. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's over. And so, Lord, I pray for your church now as we are scattered that we would hold fast to this gospel like never before that we would not be like sheep who are scattered, 
but in every means we would be herding ourselves into the pen of your pasture. That we would be sheep who hear your voice and follow you, and we do not listen to the voice of another. That we do not listen to the one who only comes in to steal, kill, and destroy. But we would listen to the Lamb of God who was slain, who laid down his life for us, and who took it up again on the third day, so that though we may die, we will live forevermore in your kingdom. Lord, we come to you, and we ask that you would hold us fast, and you would keep us from the evil one. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.